And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. MotoGP is technically on its summer holiday, but that isn't stopping news emerging, even though most of it so far in the last week has been news we did know was coming anyway. Welcome to the Race MotoGP podcast. Um, this is not Toby Moody. This is Matt Beer back in Stefan Bradle stand-in mode. But you will be hearing from Toby pretty soon in this episode. He has been carrying out some retro interviews for us for the summer break. And we've got a particularly fascinating one coming up shortly. But before we get into that, I've brought together Simon Patterson and Valentin Hurunchi to discuss some of the breaking news that's happened in the MotoGP world. Um, actually, literally this morning. And that is confirmation that uh, Alex Rins, one of the Suzuki refugees, is going to be be at Honda for his future on the LCR bike. So, Simon, good signing by LCR slash Honda, actually, because this is an HRC-based deal, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's uh, kind of a, a replacement for the Alex Marquez signing now that he's off to Grassini, and it seems like they've continued on with that contract format as well, where it's it's signed directly with HRC as opposed to Lucio Cecanello's team, which is a trend that actually they started with Cal Crutchlow uh, back in, I think, 2017 or 2018 when he moved from an LCR deal to a, a HRC deal staying with the team um, yeah it's a, it's a good signing uh, I think Alex um, perhaps isn't a rider who you'd naturally assume would go well on the Honda because he's someone that likes quite a smooth bike and we know that the, the RC213V is a bit of an animal at the minute but I think that the fact that they've signed him and that they've most likely signed his current Suzuki teammate Juan Mir as well to replace Paul Espigaro will be a, a sensible continuation of the development that Honda have started this year in trying to make that bike a bit more rider friendly. Um, he's a he's a, a good development rider. We've seen him turn the Suzuki from a brand new bike, essentially a back of the grid dog, into a championship winner alongside Mir. So for that, um, yeah, it, it makes sense to have Rins on board for next year. Uh, ultimately, it was it was Rins who was the principal rider when the transformation from the nadir of 2017, the first you know Rins year, to basically to 2018 when it became properly good, and obviously to 2020 when it was a title contender. Obviously, you know, first and foremost, the credit for that goes to the designers, the test team, etc. But clearly, you also have to have a really good rider giving really good feedback, and that it seems like seems like something Alex Rins is quite good at. Uh, I guess is it a natural fit for him, the Honda? No, but it, the last few years, the Honda isn't a natural fit for anybody. So at this point, you you might as well sign the best available development rider. And I think Rins is that. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it should have worked out with Paul. Paul should have been the development rider who properly fixed that bike, and it hasn't exactly happened. Maybe, maybe this time it'll work out. And certainly, it is a really good signing. The fact that they got such, a, such an easy run at 
a factory rider and a race winner, despite the current state of the Honda program, is that's the bit that surprises me a bit. It's also worth noting that whenever he did all that development work on the the, the Suzuki back in 2017, whenever he was teammates with uh, Andrea Iannone, it was Iannone who was expected to come in as the, the real sort of development rider, given his experience with Ducati. And it just didn't work for him. It was Rins that, by all accounts, did the lion's share of that work as a rookie. So he's he's got good uh, good sort of good kudos in that field. And I would imagine that Honda, as long as Honda use him well and actually listen to him, then there's a good opportunity there to really move that bike on a bit. Honestly, he should be in the he should be in the second factory Yamaha. I don't think that's a particularly controversial stance to take uh franco morridelli obviously capable of much greater things but is currently on course for the potentially the worst season a full-time yamaha MotoGP factory rider has had since this team and its iteration began in 1999 um without that 23 deal that he already had in his pocket i think swapping him out for alex rins would have been a very Tempting proposition, but obviously there's no factory Yamaha seat to go into. There's now no satellite Yamaha seat. Um, I'm surprised that Aprilia with RNF couldn't offer him a factory spec bike because I think a factory spec Aprilia would have been more tempting than a factory spec Honda. But I am also surprised that Ducati didn't, as Rint says, the deciding factor was having an up to date machine which is something that Ducati couldn't offer and it seems Aprilia couldn't offer, but it's something Honda could offer. But when you have a rider who really shouldn't be on the market, it's, you know, it's uh, circumstances dictated that we have this rider who's a factory caliber rider who ended up going for satellite seats. Uh, you'd think that you'd put out, pull out all the stops to, to secure a signature. And I am, I am a little bit surprised that only Honda did. But again, I don't, I don't see the financials. I don't know. Like it's, I'm not the one who's supposed to be running six factory bikes or whatever. That does sound quite quite rough. Well, one thing that I think we can say with uh, a bit more sort of conclusive backing this morning is that, so obviously we, we've had a fair idea that Rins was going to LCR since the, the last race in, in Aston where he basically gave the game away. But uh, for all the, the naysayers who keep insisting that they believe Franco Morbidelli's place is in doubt for next year, even though he has a contract on the basis of Maverick Vinales had a contract for this year and isn't at Yamaha. Um, I think the fact that, that Rins has gone elsewhere pretty much conclusively proves that Yamaha are going to stick with Morbidelli for next season because, for me, he was the ideal fit for that bike. Um, so whenever you not sign him, whenever he clearly isn't available, then we know that Morbidelli is 100% staying at Yamaha next year. I'd also imagine that Yamaha doesn't want to get in the habit of being seen to be breaking contracts on a regular basis as well. Plus, the Vinales thing, even before the sabotage, was so explosive in terms of a personality fallout that it's, it's hard to see Franco Morbidelli kicking up that level of fuss in, in any situation. Yeah, there's, it would be a different situation. Cut, cutting Frankie after the efforts he put in in 2020, cutting him at the, at the first hurdle, as big as this hurdle has been. And again, it's been big. This This is not a... Not a very good season, to put it very mildly. But yeah, that would have been maybe taking a turn for the ruthless that maybe would have been more trouble than 
having Alex Rins in right now was worth. But we'll see. Like, I don't know. I Honestly, I still would have tried it. And I, I can't tell you that they haven't. I don't know. But yeah we'll we'll see how we'll see how it works out for for yamaha in the longer term how it will work out for for alex at lcr the, the other difference in the vinyawas versus the morbid always situation was that by this time last year both sides wanted rid of the other one whereas in this site you know morbid is insistent he's staying and yamaha seemed to be backing him there's very different language coming out of the two camps or the two sides of the camp about it so Obviously, though, I think it's a very good suggestion that um, if Yamaha had been feeling like a change, shopping for a Suzuki rider would have been the ideal move given the the bike's characteristics. You know, the Suzuki's been regarded as most of the time in the last few years a very, very rider-friendly proposition. You know, not too aggressive a bike to ride necessarily. Whereas the Honda has been has been literally breaking people. Um, how confident are you two that that Rins and and Mir, when when his deal's announced, can actually handle what Honda's going to be giving them? uh confident no not not particularly again not not after the not after the poll thing uh i don't know man i'm just <laughs> not not even after the poll thing i just there's it's such uncertainty when riders change bikes in in modern moto gp it just it takes so long to work out for those who it does work out for and for many just never gets off the ground like just every basically every example i can think of certainly either steered really close to disaster or was just flat out bad uh even like the the most successful recent example that's in my head right now you know what vinales is doing with aprilia he's still taking a really long time to to get to alicia's level on that bike even though before his stint most of us would have said that vinales is ahead of alicia so yeah i'm i'm not I'm not even a little bit confident. No, I, I, again, I really rate Alex Rins and obviously I really rate Mir too. And what, what Rins and Mir accomplished with Suzuki gives you hope, but that's just confident. No, 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 no. The, the thing for me, the, the reason for me why if you were Yamaha you'd be looking at a Suzuki rider is because let's not forget they're basically the only other riders in the grid uh, who are on inline force. So that, that learning curve that the Vinales is going through at the minute, they're the only two riders who don't have to make it, right? They're the two that already know that engine configuration at least. Um, but it's not to be and Rins is going to have to learn to ride a new bike. I think whenever the almost inevitable Mir announcement comes that he's going to Rapsol Honda, that will take less time because of the way he rides a bike. Um, but Honda have to know that they've signed Rins knowing that it's going to take a good six months minimum before he's you know, showing the levels of, of sort of competitiveness that we know he can do in a Suzuki. And speaking of Suzuki, since our last podcast, they have made it official that they are exiting MotoGP, something we've we've known for, what, at least two, maybe three months. Initially, they'd said that Dorna was sort of holding them to some terms and conditions first before the announcement could actually come. The announcement has come now. Um, their, their reasoning for pulling out isn't quite what it seems, though, is it, Simon? Not at all. So but they've made this statement saying that they're pulling out so they can concentrate elsewhere uh look at sustainability sort of hints at the future's electric etc cetera, etc cetera. but that's not what we're hearing internally um it sounds much more like this is a battle that's being fought over some sort of internal power struggle within the suzuki board 
Uh, and to me, that's kind of evidenced by the announcement confirming that they weren't just pulling out of MotoGP, they were also pulling out of the Endurance World Championship, where they're the reigning champions, because that team costs them almost nothing. That That's a, a rounding error on a budget, the amount of money they put into that, compared to even the MotoGP team you know, versus their bigger marketing budget. So to see a wholesale withdrawal from all forms of racing doesn't really fit with anything at all. Um, and yeah, that, that that sort of confirms those rumours, I think, that we've been hearing suggesting that there's more to this. But if it is true, if it is something that's being fought out internally in Japan, the odds of us ever getting someone to go on the record and confirm that are nigh on impossible. My memory on this one is, is not so good, but the, the sustainability reasoning, it's sort of vaguely reminiscent of what Honda said when it called time and it's latest f1 dalliance isn't it like it's sort of there was also something going on there clouded by rhetoric of focusing on insider sustainability programs or something like that yeah it's 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 what you would cite as the reason if you're leaving a motorsport series in 2022 or 2020 or whatever so yeah Hey, maybe it is actually that. Who knows? Well, like, like you say, environment slash inflation is the other one you could cite right now if you wanted. There are, there are reasons if you're a manufacturer to stop going racing right now. But um, the Suzuki announcement was, was so well, the Suzuki news when it emerged long before the announcement was uh, was so out of the blue and, and did really shake MotoGP. I suppose the one thing, other thing we should consider is um, at the time there were semi-positive noises from Dorna that if Suzuki went, the, you know, it could find a replacement. Are we expecting in any in the remotely near future anything to to fill this slot on the grid? We 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 whenever that was first announced, whenever that statement from Dorna first came out suggesting that there were other interests, we dismissed it at the time as as you know pie in the sky thinking. And that remains I just there's no manufacturer anywhere near ready to come into the championship right now. Um, not even because of the pandemic, just because of the lead time on it. Um, Dorna have said that those grid spots are for factory teams, not for satellites. And yeah, I just, no way. Okay, well, thank you, Fel and Simon, for joining us for that uh, quick Suzuki and its aftermath chat. We're going to hand over to Toby now. Um, speaking of you know, manufacturers coming in and out, we're going to talk with Toby with uh, Tom Jojic, veteran crew chief who's been in MotoGP through an era of uh, rising interest, falling grids, renaissance again. Um, There's a fascinating chat between him and Toby coming up, so enjoy that now. And uh, Simon and Val, thanks for your time. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We're right in the middle of the summer break for MotoGP 2022, so we are catching up with people from around the paddock and around the world of Grand Prix motorcycle racing. This week, I caught up with Tom Jojic, who worked at Team Roberts, Kawasaki and KTM, also at times joining me upstairs in the commentary box for the odd session, giving us a brilliant insight as to what went on inside a team, inside an engineer's mind, and what it was like to win Grand Prix races. Enjoy it, because Tom's chat is as good as always. Listen to this. Tom, thank you for joining us. Now, you're a Canadian, you've worked all over the world, but where in the world are you right now as we catch up? Yeah, here I am in southern England. I live uh, very close to Salisbury in Wiltshire, about six miles south, a little village called Downton. And um, my wife was born in this village, so this is how we ended up here. We have a young son, he's 12. And yeah, I love it. I moved to the UK in 1996. Let me get my year right. I was married in 95. So yeah, 96. So I've spent half my life in this country. I, I feel I have both passports and I feel just as British as I do Canadian. So you can make a real cup of tea now, can you? I can. I'm pretty good at tea. Um, coffee. I'm, I'm a specialist in coffee, actually. So um, but yeah, teas. I'm always I'm always up for a good cup of tea. So how did you make the jump over from Canada to England in 96 or so? What what got Tom into racing? Yeah, my idea was I came here on holidays and um, in 88 or 87, I don't remember what year it was. It was minus 30 in Canada and we landed at Heathrow. It was plus 17, super hot. I mean, for winter, for winter, it was not normal here. But I thought to myself, wow, I could ride my motorcycle all year if I lived here. And then just through the years, my wife is British. Her parents emigrated to Canada. We decided to move here. I was working in aircraft um, and a lot of the skills translate into racing. And I just saw an advert in a in an autosport magazine. Remember those days, autosport? And um, it... Um, it was a job advertised for exactly what I did in racing, but in in um, in sorry, what I did in aircraft, but in racing. And I thought, how is that possible? So I applied for it. Um, I didn't get the first one, but I got the second one, which was a Tom Walkinshaw Racing Le Mans project. We went to Le Mans and finished third, fifth, and sixth in 1998. Um, Tony Southgate designed that car, Nissan R390. Yeah. Great car, and um, I had a great experience, loved it. I wanted to get into 500 Grand Prix, that was me. I just had been watching it as a kid, was always a fan of Mick Dew and Kevin Schwantz, Wayne Rainey, Kenny Roberts, Randy Mamola, all those guys. And um, 
And the, one of the engineers knew the receptionist at Team Roberts. They gave me the phone number and I just kept phoning and phoning and phoning until I got a hold of Chuck Axland, who, who then um, hired me. Crazy wow. guy. <laughs> yeah, wow. imagine that. So you went. Yeah. So 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 Kenny was your hero, and you end up by working for him. That's pretty crazy. Cool. Y- yeah, I went to. Well, when Nissan pulled out, I went to Tom Walkinshaw Aeros. So I was part of the Aeros project. I was supposed to go on the race team, but I really wanted to go MotoGP 500s back then. And yeah, I remember it vividly. It was November of '98. I got on an airplane, and my first day for Kenny was flying to Phillip Island. Imagine. Holy that. smoke! Yeah, here's a kid from Canada. No idea what you're doing. You're just winging it, basically. And um, my electronics background got me a job. And um, I'm standing in the pit lane with Kenny, Mick, Randy, and Jean-Michel Bale was my rider. And um, that was the beginning of my 20-some years in 500s MotoGP. So what were you doing? Were you the data logger and analysis? What was Tom doing? So at that time, um, the 500 days, we were looking at jetting mostly. So I was the electronics data analyst. So we would download the bike, look at the data we had. The race engineer would ask us if everything was okay. We would try to make the bike run as as well as we could based on the information we had. And it was all electronics through an ECU, through a data logger, telling the mechanics which jets to change needles to screw in and out blah 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 various other things um and then also looking at suspension i was super interested in the dynamics of how a motorcycle worked coming from an aircraft background you're always interested in how three-dimensional things work and motorcycles are much more three-dimensional than cars that's my opinion and so it was super interesting and yeah that was the start of the um of a great journey and i i had a fantastic mentor tom o'kane who i think you've spoken about in the past um he won recently MotoGP with suzuki fantastic electronics engineer amazing background and yeah he was my boss for about six or seven years before he moved on to suzuki so well you learned from I hate, the yeah. expre- I hate the expression. You learned from a bit of a god, really, didn't you? Definitely. Yeah. What was it like with that Medina's thing? Was it just ahead of its day? Well, yeah, she, it was a bit, well, ahead in some ways, but not ready for the real world in others. I mean, you know, when you're racing, Kenny had the, he had the balls to build a motorcycle and race the factories. I mean, that takes some, that takes mm. some serious incentive and also like he knew what he wanted but the thing is you've got to beat these guys at little things little things are things that stop your bike right and there's always little things that if we think the japanese and the italians basically we're talking about aprilia ducati yamaha honda suzuki right and kawasaki yet to some extent you know they've gone through this cycle of building stuff over and over and over again and so they find their way of making sure their bikes always finish races and when you start up a new project, you almost need to be doing that for two years in the background, ironing out the niggles until you bring it to a racetrack and try and race it in anger. Mm, not easy, not easy, because no. it's a 50p no. part that goes wrong, not necessarily the, the piston or the rod, is it? That's right. Like you might have the best chassis. Maybe you've out, out designed them from that point of view. But if the thing pukes oil out every five minutes, riders mm. aren't going to want to ride it. <laughs> you know, that kind of is no incentive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we had the KR shuffle, we used to call it. The rider would go, get, hop off the bike and first thing he'd do is look down at his boots to see if there's any oil on him. And I remember thinking, what's he doing? One of the mechanics said to me, he's looking at his boots to make sure there isn't any oil on him, you know, because mm. it's like 
I thought, geez, I wouldn't want to do that. But that that's what it was. You know, back in those days, we were we weren't afraid to build something and take it out there and race it. And it it um, it was pretty successful. Never won a race, but to stick the thing on pole and to to um, be in the top six quite a few times, like it pretty impressive, really, to come from basically a tiny little factory based in Banbury. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you say, you, you put it on pole position. Jeremy was with you, Jeremy McWilliams, in the last year of the two-stroke, which was 2002. That little triple, um, what was it, 115 kilos? Yes. Uh, Bridgestones uh, in their infancy. Correct. But actually, they were gold on qualifying. Yeah, we we love Bridgestone. They showed up and it was just like, wait, we need to make a tire to fit this bike. And they just had this program of they were going to dominate the sport. And the best way to start is to pick something that's an underdog. And then they just had a testing plan and we would go testing for them. But it was all it wasn't for them. It was for us that it was to their benefit in the long run. But basically, they made a tire just for us. And the thing was phenomenal. I remember vividly in Magello, Valentino followed Aoki and he came into our garage and he wandered in and he said, that bike is expression is I'm not allowed to use the F word and I don't, but I mean, blinking amazing. He said, what the heck if you guys have an incredible, I couldn't, he, he couldn't believe if, if it had the power of the fours that we would, we would ride away from him. So we should have built a four cylinder really, but for the extra 15 kilos, it still would have handled just as well, I think. You know, it was um, it was it was minute little details. You know, so it, it, yeah, I, I loved it. It was, I think, my happiest time in racing. Well, maybe second happiest, but pretty close. Some of your happiest time. So yeah, what was it? What was it like that day? You put it on pole and you beat the four strokes. You beat a V five at Phillip Island to pole position with that yeah. little thing, if, without demeaning it. Yeah, it's pretty special. I mean. Phillip Island, like most race fans know, it's a go-kart track, really. I mean, it's not quite Saxon mm, Ring. But it's a it, bit it, quicker it's, than that, Tom. Come on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's got a proper straight, but it's narrow and bumpy, right? Which suits a little, which suits a lighter bike. So, And it's pretty sketchy, right? Like, there's some corners there that you think you should be... If you've never been around it, you think you should be going right when you should be going left. So, kind of Nürburgring ring-esque, you know, to some degree. But yeah, I mean, those days are always the best. And I remember, you know, we did that at Phillip Island and also in Saxon Ring in 2003, Jeremy was a thousandth of a second off pole position. Pedrosa got it right in his in. And um, uh, it was it was ridiculous, right? Like it, it just kind of blew you away back then how you could pedal something around so well. And like the funniest thing we, that Kenny ever said was, was here's us like thinking we're going to take the dog to the vet to put it down. And it comes out tail wagging, jumping around the day we, we're taking it to the vet. So you can't, you know, that was his best way of, of describing it. And it, those kind of things just kept you laughing all the time, right? I saw him at Goodwood the other week, Tom, and uh, he was riding the bike that you're talking about, the triple, put it on pole position at, uh, at Phillip Island. And I said, you won't remember the quote in the press release that you made on the Saturday night. What's that? I said, well, it's like the dog when you're taking it to the vet when you know it's going to be a one-way trip, but halfway there it sits up and starts barking. And he laughed. And he genuinely (laughs) belly laughed. And I went, you know, that's special because 
you know, I was the journalist. I came into the garage, as you know, and, and saw you guys because I had an empathy with you because you were British, even though you were Team America, Kenny, whatever, but you were down the road. I used to bring some parts for you in the, in, on the plane on a, on, a, on a Thursday because I was leaving three days later than the truck or four days later than the truck and such like. But it was a good atmosphere. But there's just that huge respect that everybody had for Kenny and there were some laughs and I dread to think of all the stories that were on Sunday night but there were some laughs but the respect is still there and I think he's a god definitely yeah he's definitely a god and and I love Kenny because you never knew how to take him when you worked for him but um but he he had this amazing sense of humor that most people didn't get to see because he looked like this stone-faced, you know, gunslinging card player. But the reality is he's also like a really nice person. One of the best people I've ever worked for, definitely. Like, you know, the, the way Kenny treated his people was top-notch. You know, th there was no doubt about that. And I just remember walking into a hotel, no, sorry, a restaurant in Laguna. And he was having dinner and I didn't even see him. I was just there with a friend of mine and um, we were waiting for our table and he came over with the family and introduced everybody to me. And I just thought, that's not normal, Kenny. Yeah. And he even said in front of people that he, um, you know, were part of his family. Tom worked for me and he's one of the best guys I ever had. And for Kenny to give you a real compliment in public is not normal. So, yeah, it, it for me made me realize that actually I was on the right track. And, you know, you always have self-doubt, Toby, right? At times, like you think you're doing a good job and then you're not. You don't get results. You do get results. And even as an engineer, like when things are going well, you still think, well, could we have done that better? But when someone like Kenny comes to you and you worked for him for almost 10 years and says you were one of the best guys that worked for me, well, that kind of makes you realize, mm -hmm. okay, things are good. You know, you can't, can't complain. When I started in 96 doing the commentary, uh, Paul Butler introduced me to Kenny. I was obviously a bit nervous because I was a 23-year-old kid and we, we had done about two or three flyaway races before we got back to Europe, to Jerez. So on Eurosport, nobody had heard what Dennis Noyes and I were, were doing, this new kid with Dennis, and I was very new, and obviously I made lots of mistakes, and I'm very embarrassed about them, but you've got to start somewhere. And Kenny just sort of said, you know, I'll, I'll make a judgment when I listen to you. I'll make a judgment when I do it. And uh, we got halfway through 96 or early 97, and he, he just said, good job today on a Sunday night. He just said, good job, because he'd obviously listened in the bus or he'd heard the scene a replay or something or other. And that, to me, was the biggest compliment. Good job. That's all it, you know, good job today. Three words, that was it. And, uh, yeah, when I saw him at Goodwood the other day, he gave me a hug. I yeah, nearly, that's good. I nearly melted. I nearly Look melted. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, fair play. Anyway, so, data engineer, how did you get to be a crew chief i suppose that's a self-answering question from myself i should word it better um that's what happens if you're good as a data engineer um but in the life of a crew chief you're in charge of that side of the garage how does that work for a motor gp weekend before the trucks arrive the week before how yeah i mean the crew chief's job is quite a difficult one it's a juggling act you know you're trying to make everything happen you're trying to keep a rider happy, content. You're solving his problems. It's risk management for the rider, right? You're trying to take the risk down for him, make it an easier bike to ride. 
your race weekend starts way before you get to a racetrack. You know, you, you're you're doing your winter prep in January. You're building your bike. You're thinking about what did we have last year that wasn't right? How are we trying to make this bike better? I'm talking from an, uh, a factory engineering point of view because that was my background from Kenny. Some race en engineers have it easier because they're all they do is get given a product and they try to polish it. That'll be later in maybe this little discussion we're having. But the first part for me is more intense because we look at our bike didn't stop well last year. Our bike turned really well, but we lost drive grip compared to our competitors. And some of that's basically based on what tire engineers are telling you. So when you've got like a Michelin engineer, and I was really lucky in my best year ever, Kenny Roberts in 2006, a Honda V5 engine. I was race engineer. Brian Harden was our data guy. Him and I worked together. We were opposite data engineers when, when um, I was at, when we started two stroke stuff. And what happened was our Michelin engineer was also Nikki's Michelin engineer and Danny's in 06. Wow. So if the Honda guys you could use a tire and the Kenny guys couldn't, the Michelin guy would tell us. He goes, you guys can't use that tire. They're going to race this tire. So you need to solve. You've got a problem to solve. So then our job as an engineer would be to try to extract some information out of the tire company to say, well, what are we? what is it in that tire that we're not doing properly? Then, or would they tell you that? Not exactly, but they, some Bridgestone were extremely good at telling you. Michelin would sometimes give you a clue, but they might not want to share everything with you. So it depends. Dunlop were quite good also, but also trying to find their way at points. So some people would help you more than others. And it depends on if they thought that you had the potential to win or not. So because Kenny Jr. did have the potential to win, we did get quite a bit of help. Then what would happen was, let's say we just finished the race weekend and it's Sunday night and we're debriefing with Junior and Senior would be in that debrief and all the rest of it. And his main problem would be, at that time, it was edge grip for us. We didn't have the edge grip that those guys had. We always had to use a softer tire than them. They couldn't race the tire we could race. We could race, a, not a qualifier, but we could race a much softer tire than them. And they, they would always need to race a harder tire. So we had a really, we had a big advantage if Michelin would let us race that soft tire. Sometimes they wouldn't want you to because they didn't think it would last, but we proved in long runs that we could make it last. So, so you, you had then, the last call. You you were yeah, we beholden did. completely to them. Yeah, exactly. We could make that final decision with the rider. Then you would what you would do is go, okay, we're coming from Lamar, we're going to Magello. Right. Last twenty years, Magello, we've always gone from this setting to that setting. I don't know. Maybe we've opened the angle, changed the offset, give them different trail, raised the pivot, something, give them more drive grip, something like that. So what we would do is I would prepare one bike the one he finished the race on exactly like he finished the race of course you would change the gearing because from the year before no between racetracks so what you would do is you would look at your Magello gearing from 05 let's say and go right we were too short here too long there so yeah if you needed to change something based on last year's race you would you would also change the gearing from Le Mans to Magello because the final drive would be different different first second third fourth fifth sixth depending of course there's also engine braking maps so you would go through that with your electronics guy and say I want he wants this to happen at the apex or just before the apex. Prepare some maps on the switch that we want him to start. I always want the rider to start what he finished the last race with. So the bike he's rolling out of the pit lane with in free practice one, being dry hopefully, is what he just finished the last race with. As close as possible, right? From a feeling point of view. And then you would have your spare bike set up 
with some option based on his complaints from last weekend or his complaints from last time at Mugello, let's say. That's how you would look at it. Then you would be looking, you would be juggling your other issues that you have and you would try to make a plan for each session. So for me, I would watch, I would watch Mugello again from last year. I'd rewatch the race and go, right, this is what happened. I'd, I'd go over my report, which, you, which when you get the timing data from Dorna, you get um, quite an intricate um, Excel sheet. Well, it, it would be a PDF file. You could export it to Excel. Then you could turn that into split times for each part of the racetrack. You could do a really intricate report, which is what I would do at home anyway. That would be my that would be my work at the end of Mugello 05. I would be preparing a report going, right, we were strong in Erbiata 1, 2, sections 3, 4, 5, or whatever. We were really weak here. Why? Try to figure that out. Then read back what I thought last year. Well, if I was racing, so my last thing of the racetrack before I leave it for the next race is if we were going to race tomorrow again, what would I do to make this bike better? That would be my question to the rider also. What Was there a better package during the weekend? Did we give you the best bike we had? Were we going down the right path? So it's based on everything that's happening around you. And you kind of really have to be aware of where you've been and where you're going. And I'm even talking like if you're in a, in a team for five or six years, it becomes a huge advantage because mm. you know you know the positives and negatives of that package and you know the positives and negatives of your rider so the longer you work for that rider the idiosyncrasies exactly yeah so there's quite a bit to do before you get there then you know the guys get there on a tuesday trucks pull up wednesday we set up wash down by wednesday i'm already debriefing with let's say olens i'm debriefing with michelin and i'm making a plan based on the parts i've got okay telling the mechanics take that engine out you know then you're talking to your engine engineer you're talking to your uh, mapping engineer for electronic side. What have we prepared? Can we give him this? Can we make this torque? Can we give him something in the exhaust system, whatever? So you're trying to juggle all that stuff at the same time. And then your Thursday, the rider shows up on Wednesday night. Thursday, they come first thing in the morning to talk to you. You, you talk to them about what happened last year, what happened at the last race. Maybe you've had a test between. You're trying to figure out some issues. Hopefully you've solved some problems and you've got a clear path. And if you don't, you got to make it look like you've got a clear path or they're going to lose their faith in you. Yeah, their head is stronger than any part you throw at the bike. Yeah, the most important thing you can do is keep your tire engineer happy so you buy them a bottle of wine and you show up yeah and it's all about keeping the tire guys happy because those guys make the lap time there's no the rider and the tires they're the difference and then if you've got the right thing going on then you've made a good plan for the weekend and then you've got you know free practice one free practice two free practice three qualifying practice let's say four exits each so you got four times four 16 bullets in your gun You've got to take a shot on every single exit of something. Yeah, everything has to be, it has to be clear. It has to be right. We, we're going out with this bike that we know. These tires are new, racetrack's new, let's go. My bike feels good. Okay, what's your main problem? My first question would always be, if the rider came back and they felt good, it's a harder job. Your first question is, well, what's stopping you going faster? And the rider has to be honest, like me, is it you that's stopping you going faster, more time on the bike, or is there a problem with the bike? Mm. So and if I he want, says that he wants more time in the bike, do you literally let him do you need to. 10, 15 laps, thing, and you've got to make a cup yeah. of tea and let him do the laps? Yeah, the more laps he can do on a tire, the better, and, the, and you know, come to a limit of something that's stopping him going quick, the 
better chance you have of solving that problem. Mm -hmm. If you start changing stuff too quickly, you'll just get lost and you won't know where you are. You'll end up having to backtrack. And so you've wasted your bullets, basically. So if the race is 30 laps at a circuit, you can't do 30 laps in practice. And even if you do do 30 laps on one set of tyres, there's going to be a break in the middle. How do you judge? At what point do you know after 10 laps, 12 laps, you look at a tyre and go, that'll last? The 30 come Sunday. Yeah, like really the most important part of tyre management and understanding that tyre during practice is the rider knowing how to switch that tyre on and how to do an in-lap properly. So if you've warmed up the tyre properly in the back of the garage, that's part of the job, educating your mechanics to do something properly, like get the heat into the tyre to the right amount don't overheat the tire he has to exit the pit lane properly and he has to warm it up properly casey stoner was a master at that then he needs to come back in the, the i think the in lap for me i hate an in lap when a rider rolls off and he's 10 seconds off in the first split what's well what's the point of that because now you've cooled the tire down now i know nothing what i need is the in lap to be you know those little red those little crash helmets that the punters don't see on tv you have the split screens you know ye yellow green red red you're fastest of everybody i want the in lap if kenny could do an in lap red 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 so he's the fastest split and then peel in and not finish the lap perfect because qualifying is when that matters but at least if he pulls in pushing as hard as as, as he did on his fastest lap that should be his fastest lap then the tire engineer puts, puts his tire probe in there we know what the temperature is the pressure's taken instantly so you know what's happened inside the carcass you usually have lasers on the carcass measuring the tire temperature then you know where you are and then you can make a decision you can put the tire blanket back on instantly keep it at 80 degrees minimum and then if he goes back out on that same tire later in the afternoon it's okay it's not the perfect way to know but it's as close as race conditions as possible like if you think about a race toby sometimes these guys go full gas for 20 laps and then all of a sudden there's three or four laps where they've cooled a little bit because probably the tires like what what always used, yeah well what used to happen is the carcass would the carcass would soften and the tire would change during the race that was a michelin trait and what would happen was no you would have a super stiff tire and then all of a sudden it became better and then the rider had to get his head around that stiffer what, again no it would become softer, softer. And that would give drive and edge grip. And then all of a sudden you had this grip instead of like, if you imagine, imagine you've pumped up an inner tube on your bicycle to, to 140 PSI like we used to in the olden days, 23 mil tires, and you go down a bumpy road and it's bouncing all over the ground. Well, that's what a, a stiff tire would feel like, even with the correct pressure in it. But say you drop it down to 80 PSI and the thing's hugging the road and absorbing all the cracks and going into the gaps all of a sudden they've got this grip they didn't have before. So if you've done everything right, the tire company has designed the tire to actually become better during the race. That's why you used to see, and I still think you do sometimes, you still see guys break the lap record on the last lap mm -hmm. when there's four guys racing. I mean, they're only able to do that because the tire was managed properly and it's getting better during the race. Mm -hmm. And there's different types of grip. Tires have, they have compound grip, they have construction grip, and then they have what's called like a um, a tearing grip. So when the construction is pushing the rubber into the ground properly, the tire will tear on the surface, and that gives extra grip if it's managed properly. 
it's like a it's a completely different world to to live in tires are amazing it is the proverbial black car what was it like working with with honda you know the v5 in my view one of the greatest engines ever designed um they took a an advantage in the rule book with weight and such like um what was it like working with them whilst they had you know danny and nikki in 2006 and they were trying to win and ultimately did the world championship it was great i mean i i met up some amazing people so takeo now is the, in charge of that project and i met him in 2006 he was a junior engineer and um we had some amazing experiences with honda we had to take our bike there to have it run on their dyno because our airbox was different using their engine they wanted to make sure we weren't going to blow it up various things like that so you got to see the inside of hrc which was pretty amazing from our point of view and there was some collaboration so we, we shared some information with them and it was an amazing time to be part of that project so yeah super lucky what's the inside of hrc like on a february morning <laughs> usually it's November, it's December, right? Because oh, okay. they work over Christmas, right? So yeah, it's um, it's a busy place. There's always things going on. It's a, there's there's so much going on in that company. It's phenomenal. Like it's not just motorcycles, right? So, so you're you're meeting different people. You're meeting people you do know, which is always good. And yeah, you're you're if you're open to different mentalities, it's a great place to to um, learn things. Good times though, because you could throw an yeah. engine in every afternoon if you wanted to. Yeah, back then the rules were, yeah, I think 06 was the first year of six engines per rider, if I remember correctly. No, uh, no, sorry, that no, that wasn't, that was 07, wasn't it? No, so 07, no, what it was I for us. I think 06 you could throw them in, I think. Yeah, what it was for us was they gave us uh, six engines and we had to main, we had to manage those engines during the season or something like that. Yeah, oh, yeah, after, it's a while ago, hey, Toby. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, those... Um, those engineering times were amazing. Like you were always learning something. You're trying to prepare for the next race, trying to learn something. There, there is a difference like from working as a crew chief and working as a development engineer. I did both. I was lucky enough to do both. I think preparation is still fundamental in the racing world. You have to be, you have to understand where you've been, where you're going. Sometimes going backwards isn't backwards. It's going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. So I remember swapping from MotoGP to Moto3 and, and being part of the KTM Moto3 project and technically winning that championship four times, once as a rider, not me riding, but with a rider that won it and three times as a um, engineer. So winning it for the factory and I was able to take over that project on the technical side at the racetrack and, and run it for KTM. So overseeing the, the six, eight bikes. Yeah, exactly. And, and you used to float between the teams and help teams out and try to help these kids win races. And I think that was, if I think back now, probably that was the best. I was able to win and win, I'm not saying easily, but with like I had a confidence that grew from maybe realizing that I'd done it differently than a lot of other people. So having an engineering background and being able to engineer, not just set something up, which was really interesting. So were you making development parts? Were you with that different frame of mind? I mean... Yeah, so basically Moto3 KTM showed up and um, maybe ba I backtrack a sec. So basically, you know, I was... Kenny stopped and I went to Kawasaki as a test engineer. 
So that was 2008. 2007 was the last year of Kenny Roberts MotoGP, the, 800, the first year of 800s. And so when I when they decided to pull out, I had to look find a new job and I'd never worked anywhere in MotoGP other than for Kenny. So I didn't know what to do, basically. So just kind of threw some feelers out there, some people I knew. And all of a sudden I got lucky enough and got a job with Kawasaki test team. I met Olivier Jacques, who is the test rider now, got sent to Malaysia for my first test in January. It was another one of those things where the phone rang and it's like, can you get on a plane tomorrow? Yeah. And I got on a plane and I was in Malaysia, walked in the garage and Olivier saw me and walked over and goes, hang, hang on a sec. You used to work for Kenny. And I said, yeah, I did. And he goes, what are you here for? And I said, I'm here to be your race engineer. <laughs> and he went, oh, thank God for that. And it was like, here we go. So that was the beginning of a, an amazing journey for me because all of a sudden I'd been let loose from this project not knowing really if I knew what I was doing or not. Like I did kind of have confidence, but also you're not sure. But then I met this world champion that I worked with and, and he was blown away. I was blown away by him and um, he, him and I clicked and we just were just unstoppable in that project. We actually beat the race team every time we tested with him. And I think that demoralized those guys. And it was a shame because I didn't, uh, my target wasn't to demoralize them. My target was just to make my rider happy. So yeah, make the thing go quicker, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. So I had two contracts with Kawasaki. I did one on the test team and I did one for development for Kawasaki Japan. And that was all the work I did with Olivier Jacques, which was really interesting. And, and it's a shame they stopped because I think they had the potential to to maybe not dominate the sport, but definitely they could have won world championships. But then, yeah, when they pulled out, I did a little project with KTM in the German championship because they hadn't joined world championship yet. And I won the German championship with them. And that's, so that stemmed back. That's a superbike championship. Correct. Yeah. IDR, wasn't it called? Correct. And that was with um, RC8, yeah? The twin yep. superbike. And so what happened there was I'd met Wolfgang Felber in 2004 when we used KTM's engine at Kenny Roberts before we used the Honda. Yeah. So I knew some KTM. And co. Exactly. Shaky rode that bike and um, and we that that project stopped halfway through that year. And it was a shame, but it is reality of racing. And so basically KTM and I had this little relationship with certain people. And yeah, then when they joined Moto3, I remember having a discussion with Wolfgang one night saying, you guys need to go to Moto3, mate. They're going to they're gonna stop 125s because 250s were already going to stop. And then I said, you guys should really think about this 250 class, four-stroke class. You guys are going to dominate that. And like, I don't know if that was what made them do it, but like I, I had a lot of respect for him and, and he made a lot of effort to hire me a couple times. So um, I said, if you guys go Moto3, mate, just you got my number. They wanted me to stay and help them go into super, World Superbike, but that wasn't my path. I said, I'm not a production engineer. I'm a development prototype engineer. That's what I like to do. So I went off and, um, and joined um, KTM when they did join. They came in 12 and I joined them. No, they came in 13, was it? Yeah, and I joined them during 13. I was working in a private team, but in the background doing development work for them. So I, what I was getting was I'd get all the Moto3 data from all of the riders, take it home, put it into my program, look at it, analyze it, do some Excel spreadsheets, look where they're strong. They're really good at cornering, really good at acceleration, whatever, whatever it was try to analyze it and then present something to them in a format that's like, you guys are really good at these racetracks because your bike accelerates extremely well and brakes really well. That was reality. Mm. I remember that. 
and then the and then right, I said, whoa, whoa, just hang on a minute on. there because I gotta get you're getting ahead of me. My brain's just gone click click whir. Didn't I see you at a Silverstone BSB when you were engineering Brad Binder? Yeah. You did, How did actually. that come about? Was that like eleven so, or twelve? It was yeah, October like, eleven, I'm sure of it. It was a long time ago. It was um they so being a race engineer, like I club race two fifty two strokes. And so I'm at Brands Hatch one day with a friend of mine, South African, and he says, you need to meet this kid, Brad Binder. You need to meet his dad, Trevor. And I'm like, you know, Kenny always said to me, you're going to hear that a million times in your career. And it's it's all 90, 99% of the time, it's not going to be worth meeting that kid. But this was one that was worth meeting. So sure enough, I'm racing Brands Hatch on my 250 and he goes out there on an Aprilia Super Teams and... That kid was phenomenal. I just remember standing on the side of the racetrack going, what? And then I said to Trevor, I said, you need to take that kid to Spain and get him into Red Bull Rookies. Because if he gets into Red Bull Rookies, he's too young to go World Championship. He was 14. He could ride Red Bull Rookies and he'll get picked up. And that's what happened. So, yeah, he, him and I were at, Silver, at Silverstone. I was trying to help him win a 125 BSB race. And um, Mr. Spalding was there, actually that day and um he took some pictures of us having to put seven kilos of lead in this bike because he was so underweight it was ridiculous seven kilos uh, some, something ridiculous that's like it was not, just that's, that's yeah. unsafe but never mind yeah it was a lot of weight <laughs> and um and yeah years later in 2016 i won the world championship with brad bender he rode for the red bull team and um, yeah, we, um, him and I had some long discussions, really clicked with him, helped him out a lot. We set his bike up perfect. He did some great races and tests for us. And there he is still there in MotoGP. So yeah, it was, um, that was a tick on my box where I turned, I came home one day and said to my wife, I don't really know if I can do, if I need to do this anymore. I go, I love what I do, but I also can see how can you repeat that? Here's a kid that I helped his dad get him into world championship and then we won the world championship together. Mm. It was it was such a good feeling. Mm. It was um, Aragon of 16. Uh, there was a Monday test and I think I got to the racetrack at midday. Uh, it was up, I was upside down. It was brutal. <laughs> it was one of the funniest moments really. I remember saying to one of the guys, I says, well, there's a point when you're drinking when you think to yourself, you need to bail the water out of the boat or you need to keep drinking and sink that thing to the bottom and i sunk i sunk that ship that night because it was pretty sweet so yeah pretty cool oh good days good days and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher availability of rsns varies by zip code and package High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, that led you to go to the KDM MotoGP project that started at the beginning of 17. So, you know, you'd gone from big class to little class, and here you are back again with a big banger and a V4 and a 1,000cc and yeah. 270 brake and a load of torque. It's still exciting things, though, aren't they, at 180, 158 kilos? I mean, they're missiles, aren't they? Yeah, they are rocket ships that really need respect, right? And they're a PlayStation, unfortunately. I, I mean, I love, I come from an electronics background and I love motorcycle racing, but I don't like, 
let's say, a, a, like that crash that we saw with Marquez this year where he yeah. high-sided. Yeah. Like, for me, those types of things shouldn't be able to happen with the electronics they have now. But also, I don't know if that's the right way to go to have that level of electronics because then a rider of, of that ability trusts it too much. So the two-stroke days, I thought, were fantastic because having been there and seen that and saw the respect those riders gave that thing, you know, they, they understood they needed to ride it. And you're talking about, you know, if we talk about 240, 260, 280 horsepower for a modern MotoGP bike, if you cut that engine in half, it's 140 horsepower, let's say, that's less than a, a modern street 600, right? Mm. If a MotoGP rider can't handle 140 horsepower, he shouldn't be riding MotoGP bikes. So what I think is the riders should the riders should control half the engine. Electronics shouldn't touch half the engine. And that makes it more respectable for them because they have to manage something that's and it, it's a beast, basically. You know, you can't give them 280 horsepower and no electronics because they'd kill themselves. Oh, no, no, that wouldn't work. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't work. So so even like road bikes have electronics now. So in some aspect, they're trying to they're trying to juggle it. And I think they're doing a great job, but I would make it a hard wire. Like what I loved about Moto3 was there was no real electronics involved. It's a cable attached to a butterfly and the rider's got to control that thing. And yeah, we're only talking about 60 65 70 horsepower but still we're talking about kids yeah 16 year olds here is where they start at that class and then you know as you progress up you know you you're learning different aspects moto 3 is about learning how to ride a motorcycle on a racetrack moto 2 is about learning how to manage a heavy motorcycle on a racetrack so braking and left right and moto gp is about everything happening 10 times faster than you could ever imagine it happening and then throwing electronics into the game where you're managing slip levels based on how much engine braking you have how much slip you want on entry how much slip you want on the apex and how much slip you want on exit they're never going in a straight line even though they look like they're going in a straight line so you 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 talking about data and i i we've never discussed this talking about data you did a little bit with Honda in MotoGP for was it DeAngelis? Was it? Yeah, yeah. So could you could you see other Honda riders' data? Could you see Pedroza's data? Uh, could you see the gods? Could you see where the difference was made? Well, when you work for certain manufacturers, you can't. They they don't share their data with. They take your data because mm. you have a contract with them. And if you're beating them, for example, like when Kenny Jr. was beating other Honda riders in 06, they would look at our data and it was an advantage to us because if we wanted to know something, if you had a good representative, the technical director between you and Honda, if your your Honda guy would come in the garage, you would say, well, what, what, where are we losing here? Because Danny's always faster than us in this section. Is it corner speed? Is it engine braking? Is it trash control? What is it? And a good engineer, they won't show you the data, but they'll give you a nudge. Yeah, and that's what I did at KTM also. Like you can't go giving everybody data because then you'll you won't have anybody's trust. So you could say you guys really are geared too short. 
you guys are trying to do this, but our bike is better at this. Like, so you have to guide them in some aspect. And part of that, like, for example, the prep for Moto3 was way bigger than the prep for MotoGP weekend for me, because at one point we had 14 riders and I'm going back, looking at all the gearing from all the riders from the year before, looking at our package, everybody's base setting, listening to the, let's say you got three or four that can win a championship. You're always going to give them more of your time. So then you've got to do all that extra prep for more riders, but you're not engineering any one rider. So in the end, you hand them what they have and hope for the best. And sometimes you make great connections with riders and their engineers and their team bosses and, they, and they're and they screaming for you, hey, grab that guy in orange because I want that guy, Tom, he really helps us a lot. So the, a mechanic will come out and grab you as you're walking by. Maybe their rider isn't having a great weekend. So you always have to turn around and go give those people as much help as you mm. can. Who are the good guys that you worked with KTM Motor 3, you know, Cortese, Miller, who? I I had a great relationship with Jack Miller. I mean, Jack won Qatar. His his first victory was my first victory. So that was a big day for me, Qatar in uh, 2014. And we lost our championship by five less than five points. That was that hurt. But I, I love Jack and I still do. And I think he should have won that championship, really. Um, I had a great relationship with... All of the Italians, um, I worked in the VR garage a lot and I actually got to meet Valentino and he knew me on a first name basis, which was a little bit like, you know, that's kind of also, you know, I, I joined, you know, he was already in one, two fives when I showed up. So like he was someone I, I admired and um, I was older than him, but also like mutual respect to some degree. And so I really liked, to be honest, I, there wasn't a rider I didn't like. To, I, I loved them all. And there was teams that I enjoyed more than others. I liked them all, but there was ones that you really, they made you feel welcome mm. all the time. We're all human. Yeah. We're all human. Yeah, we can't exactly. stop ourselves. Yeah, yeah exactly. So it, it's, um, it's looking back, it was great times and, and interesting work. A lifestyle, right, Toby? Mm. You were there. It's, yeah. it's not a job. It's, it's a lifestyle. It is a job. Come on. You've said it yourself. You're trying to set up 14 bikes, Tom, and I'm trying to remember the difference between three riders in Moto3, and they've all got the same colour scheme, the same Red Bull helmet, and the same 66, 6, and 88 number on the front. You've been in the box with me. It's not easy at times, especially with the size of the television screen that they gave us at the time, and it wasn't 4K, and it wasn't on a super digital screen. No, that's right. no, No, don't, don't. Don't demean your uh, your your professionalism, but uh, it is a lifestyle as well because you're traveling the world, you're away from home a lot, you're away yeah. in Asia for those three and a bit, nearly four weeks in in the autumn. Um, it makes a hole in your life, but it is an experience, and you know we, we've had some giggles and we've made some friends, and it's how you and I met. It's as simple as That's that. That's right. Um, you know, two hundred and eighty-seven days out of the country, one year. Oh, stroll on. 287. Imagine it, eh? I never counted them up, but yeah. I did 101, 100 something flights one year. But, yeah. Uh, but anyway, no, never game. complain at a high level. It's one of the expressions that the Germans have, Tom. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but but good good days. What was it like with the Valentinos, the, the, em, <laughs> the, the embryonic VR46 yeah. team? What was that like? I, I loved their team. I mean, I actually, I would have worked for them if they'd ever offered. So it was one of those things that it kind of reminded me of Kenny. You know, when you when you guy like Valentino shows up and then you I went to, to his ranch, had a tour around his facility, saw all that stuff. And I was like, wow, this reminds me of being in California, seeing Kenny's stuff. Super cool. And I remember 
Remember when he wore those Ray-Ban shades, those Wayfarers from the, you know, the um, Risky Business movie? I had a pair of those at my mom's house in Edmonton in Canada. And I'd come back from Laguna and um, I stopped home to see my, my mom and um, and I dug him up and found him. And I remember going to Bruno and I was walking down the, down, at the end of the race, I was walking uh, around the racetrack and I put him on and as he rolled down the pit lane he saw me and he saw the sunglasses and he gave me the old thumbs up it was one of the funniest moments ever and years later when I worked with him and I had a few days a few moments where I had to sit down with Valentino in front of a laptop and some young Italian riders and explain you know what they need to do better to beat a guy like Brad Binder for example and um I'll never forget, like in Indianapolis, in no, it wasn't Indy, sorry, it was Texas, in Austin, Texas, in 15. Was it 16? It was 16 with Romano. Fanati won the race. And next minute, I'm standing on a pit wall, giving him a, a salute, and um, Valentino was standing beside me with his arm around me. And I was like, my God, it's Valentino. It's like, mm. And um, somebody got a picture of that and sent it to me. One of the, re one of the re reporters took a picture of it, and I'll... I've got that picture on my phone. It's like one of those things that being like, you know, a kid from Canada that how did I end up there? It's pretty cool. But yeah, stuff like that makes you giggle, right? You're like, what the heck? Valentino's got his arm around me. And he knows you on a first name basis. And I've got his phone number in my phone, I think. It's like, I've never phoned him. But it's like, yeah, you know what I mean? That type of thing. So I think that respect makes you work harder for people, doesn't it? You know, um, definitely, you know, they're hard because riders can be hard and riders can be selfish, not all of them, you know, but it is them on the bike. And it doesn't matter how many people and how many millions of dollars are being pumped into a V5 or a thousand at the moment. There's only one person trying to actually make it get to the line yeah. um and we do have respect for them some of some of them are difficult and i'm sure you've had the odd one yeah definitely <laughs> yeah yeah there's no doubt about that challenging yeah mm. i think i think somebody somebody said to me one day yeah that's a very um i can't remember how they put it now i wish I, I'll, I'll have to come to me but the way they they mentioned certain riders yeah that, that's a very unneedy rider it was just like you know when you get these guys that show up and they just you can give them, you know, we'll put the back wheel in the front and the front wheel in the back and they still win the race. Like guys yeah. like Valentino in his day and Marquez and, you know, even Kenny Sr. in his day. Like it's just these guys can just ride around problems. And I think that was, for me, the biggest difference I saw coming from Kenny's to go into factories was the fact that all the best riders want to ride for a factory. There's no doubt about that. And then you have this huge advantage as a factory engineer that you have someone who's able to solve your problems for you on Sunday. Because when it comes to the race, no matter how needy the rider is, the best ones are going to always win, no matter how good their bike is. Mm. The best riders then, the ones that, that you know, rise above it, are the ones that come back and go, I won today, but because of me. Now, what you guys need to do for me is solve this problem. And then the fundamental there is understanding whether that problem is a setting problem or a development problem. That's where a knife edge of being, let's say not being a development engineer for a lot of the guys out there setting up motorcycles, that's where they lack the experience. And that's where kind of, I guess I had a, lot, a big advantage coming from a development background. You would then think to yourself, well, we could solve this problem setting wise with three settings. So let's go to a test and try them. If we haven't solved it, then you go back to the factory and go, 
we have a fundamental problem here. The engine's in the wrong spot. The steering head's too high. The pivot's wrong. The stiffness is wrong. Whatever. You can pick a fundamental and talk about that. We could talk two hours on chassis and swing arm stiffnesses, Toby, for the stuff I've done. Mm. But the reality is that's kind of like, that's what I liked about the job the most, is you, mm. could, you, you could work out which thing needs to change, setting or fundamental bike issue. And Moto3 was one of the best learning tools for that. No power, super light, riders that can ride around problems. But if you can fundamentally make that bike easier to ride, then average riders can win races. And then you've got really more in- of a spread. Yeah, exactly. 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 Really interesting. Um, um, what What's interesting in MotoGP at the moment is also potentially the sway away from the Japanese. Suzuki are pulling out, you know, the Japanese, so long as you and I have known it, full stop have always had this overarching power, if I can call that, or umbrella over the MotoGP paddock. But the Europeans are coming. You've worked for the Europeans in the shape of of KTM. Um, Do you think it it might be a good thing for MotoGP? Do you think the Japanese, they've had their day, they've had their decades, they've had their half a century? Yeah, that's a tough one because we don't want one type racing, do we? I think... I think we should have them all there personally. Like if I think, if you think back to when MotoGP started, you had Kawasaki as well. You had Suzuki, you had Aprilia, Ducati were there. Um, we didn't have KTM, but but really you had all the Japanese and and you had even BMW thinking about showing up, you know, that type of stuff. Mm. So They made a couple, of, think, uh, a couple of prototypes, mm, never got anywhere. Exactly. And I think really if, if Suzuki do pull out, that would be, quite a sad day in the sport really um the more variety the better and really it's the tire war was one of the greatest things that ever happened because they could tire companies could make their tires specifically for a yamaha or a suzuki or a ktm or a honda whatever and then you've got this advantage at certain racetracks so i think the more we the more we filter it down into one brand of anything the less exciting it will be in the long run, but I mean that's a business issue, right? Mm. There's more. There's more to racing than just racing, right? Yeah, yeah, and you can see why there's a single tire rule. I, yes. I can see why. Whether or not I get it is a different discussion, and I'm sure you have the same thought process. But just just go back a bit, shall we? To to my favourite race, Estoril 2006. <laughs> you know. I came in early in the morning with Julian. We're walking through the paddock. I took a picture of them taking the tyres out the back of a Renault, Espas, van, people carrier thing that were made overnight, Saturday night, from your Friday and Saturday data. And there was one front and one rear for each rider on Michelin's. I mean, how bloody cool was that? Talk about yeah, prototype a- racing. I mean, they were still warm out yeah, the yeah. mould, weren't they? 2006 was the peak of MotoGP tire war. I mean, Michelin were making tires at the racetrack in Europe. Not at the racetrack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were making them at the racetrack as well. So, you know, they, they had an articulated lorry just around the corner and they were making tires. But yeah, they, they showed up with, you know, five or six tires and they said, you guys need to try all of this stuff. So left side, right side, edge grip, drive grip, down the straight, different constructions, whatever. And then by Sunday, everybody had the perfect tire, as long as the weather forecast didn't change. And, you know, there was a, 
a cookie cutter type of mentality there was an amazing thing going on in the back of that michelin truck and these guys would show up and we would have these tires on sunday that were perfection you cannot believe how good they were and they couldn't do that at the flyaways because they couldn't turn it around quick enough but yeah in europe they would drive stuff from Clermont Ferrand maybe mm-hmm. and and do stuff at the racetrack and yeah like you you would not believe I don't think Bridgestone won a European race that year if they did we could go back and look at the numbers they probably did but they would have been lucky because I tell you what those Michelins on on European soil were unbeatable and so is that why Elias beat you to the flipping win no so Elias and us had the same rear tire Valentino six yeah so we went i remember the warm-up remember you remember i remember the weather was better and then kenny was pretty confident we didn't qualify well because we messed up the four qualifying tires and we fit we qualified 14th or something but he was like don't worry i got this you were and so 14th warning, that day i've forgotten that. yeah yeah we were behind elias on the grid and so what happened was morning warm-up there was like this hazy kind of drizzle remember it was like it wasn't warm and kenny came back after warm-up and he says we're in trouble tom you need to go to nicholas and go tell him that i want that soft tire i want to race that soft tire and i said kenny we haven't done the laps we haven't done enough laps on that soft anyways i go to the mission truck cut a long story short we got to race it but nicholas said to me if you're going to race it i'm going to give it to one other team as well Maybe two. But anyway, you, it's not going to be just you guys. So I know Tony had it. So they gave it to Tony. And so we lost that race because Kenny misjudged it. He thought he thought the lap before was the last lap. We went through all this trouble to talk about pit boards. And I want my, this on my pit board. I want that on my pit board. I loved Kenny Jr. But we lost that race because he did it wrong. He won the race in his mind. And then they, yeah, they got him go. on the first... Yeah, unlucky because that would have been a that would have been the crowning moment for Kenny's project. You We'd know, still be his... in the bar. We'd still be in the nightclub. Oh, exactly. man alive! Yeah. So that that was like a that was an amazing time to be in MotoGP because Bridgestone versus versus Michelin versus Dunlop, and all three of them had some advantage, and you never really knew who was going to use that advantage to the best. Mm. So there there was like ah that was superb, and then. You know, leaving Kenny's and Bridgestone dominating and Michelin pulling out, I remember being at Kawasaki test team and testing for Bridgestones. I mean, that was pretty amazing too. You know, you learn a lot from tire engineers. That's how you make a motorcycle work, is you make the motorcycle fit the tire. What's your favorite Kenny story? Come on. Oh man, my favorite (laughs) Kenny story. Well, I think maybe the best one is Assen in 2003. So we showed up at Assen with four bikes built and, and something like two spare engines for each rider or something like that. And this was the first year Kenny's making a V5, his own engine. And we had some Formula One people involved and um, they were trying to do something different. Not really what Kenny wanted, but he's paying people, so let him do it. Anyways, we had this practice and I think it was the second practice three bikes had seized. And so by the this time was the got, V5, just to explain. Yeah, Kenny V5. And like all of a sudden we're down to one bike for each rider where we showed up with four bikes and two spare engines each. And I just remember this engineer coming, this engine engineer saying, I said, we got a problem. We got an oil light on the dash and we set up, we set it up. So the rider, if he saw an oil light, there's no questions about, 
yeah, you roll off and you just go walk back to the pit lane. And the engineer asked me to put tape over the light because he didn't believe there was a problem with the oil <laughs> pressure. And I was like, I remember looking across going, dude, I think you got a serious problem here. We're going to be lucky to finish this race. Never mind, start it, you know. So oh dear. didn't you lose a crank on whilst it was being warmed up on the stands at Le Mans? I yeah, remember. that was the first warm up. Oh, so no. four bikes and two spare engines and the guys are outside warming the bike up on Thursday evening before you start practice Friday, making sure everything's good. And one of the engines seized. What was wrong with it for? For it to, uh, well. There was just some big issues back then. And like, you know, you're trying to race factories without enough development and all the rest mm. of it. So late nights, three, four in the morning, many times. I mean, you got to hand it to him. You know, he, he did always want to take it to the Japanese. He did always want to just bring yeah. that Formula One-ness into MotoGP that was arguably 10 15 years behind with development compared with Formula One at the time, who were making a new wing M plate every flipping day uh, yeah and ferrari well mclaren had two separate test teams i mean how mad is that you think about it nowadays um you you got to give it true. to him you got to give it to him. but one last little thing you know the, the f1 guys they they tried to bring their f1 tech into motor gp and like we started at the top of the podcast was it just ahead of the the curve I think the Formula One guys looked at it the wrong way. They, they thought that they could make the motorcycle based on numbers. But rea reality is motorcycles are about feeling for riders. So what they did really well was they, they tightened up the quality control. Okay. So I think that was the fundamental thing that the F1 guys brought to Kenny's project that really helped the mechanics at the racetrack. So when you got a, a part out of the truck that was a spare part, it fit. That quality control was there all of a sudden that that the bike racing world didn't have. You know, bikes were kind of hand built one offs, right? They were proper prototypes. So what they they brought that structure that was missing, but they they tried to number crunch it too much to some degree. So I think, you know, they're still maybe now MotoGP is much more it's much closer to Formula One than it ever has been. Sure. But the rider the rider still puts his knee and elbow on the ground and picks the bike up when it slides too much. So mm. how do you number crunch that? That's tough, eh? And it'll that's, never change. And that's why we love yeah, it. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, that's why the key. we love it. <clears throat> so yeah. what's Tom's best moment? Was it watching something, being part of something? Was it that, that Austin win? Was it the Binder win? What was it? Definitely, I've I, I got to say that my best moment in, in my career in MotoGP was Brad Binder winning the World Championship in 2016. And also Valencia that year, because what happened was he made a deal with KTM that if he wins the race, he gets his bike. And I remember he ran off. He had a problem with the bike and the guys thought he's not going to win this. He was like 14th and he came back and won the race. And so for me, we, we locked out the podium, three KTMs, and I think they haven't done that since I've left, basically. So maybe they've come close a couple of times. But for me, that was like the ultimate. I, I think looking back. 16 yeah i put so much work into making that bike what it was and then a kid that i helped get there won the championship super cool that is a super cool story from a one two five race of brands all the way through to winning the world championship fair play fair play yeah. uh tom uh don't be a stranger don't uh, don't go far maybe we'll catch up another day but it's been great to catch up thank you my pleasure toby good to talk to you
He's good, isn't he? Thank you so much, Tom, for the time and the chat. He's normally out cycling huge miles and very quickly too during the summer, but he's very engaging and concise with his analysis and his understanding of the dynamics of a MotoGP bike. When he said he could talk for two hours about tyres, he could, and trust me, it is fascinating once you get into it. The Kenny stories are legendary, with quite a few we just can't repeat here. But speaking from experience of going into all of the garages daily during that era, the best atmosphere was always in the Red Bull Yamaha and the Team Roberts garages, with good banter, good fun, and yet they worked so incredibly hard. That Estoril 2006 Grand Prix, it was so close for Kenny Jr. and Team Roberts. But hey, it was still a good party. I can attest to that. Thank you so much, Tom. And thank you for listening in to our pods. Leave your comments and ratings as you see fit wherever you download them from. It'll be great to hear what you think. Plus, don't forget, we also have our listeners' questions. Record a voice message on your phone and then email them to podcasts at the-race.com. That's the email to send your voice messages to. Get them into us. So MotoGP 2022, we've had 11 Grand Prix gone. They have been Qatar, Indonesia, Argentina, Texas at the Circuit of the Americas, Portugal, Jerez, Le Mans, Mugello, Catalonia, Saxonring and Assen. Next up, it's going to be the British Grand Prix at Silverstone on August the 7th before pinging over to the Red Bull Ring in Austria. Then Misano, Aragon. Mategi, Thailand, Phillip Island, Sepang. That is the Asian trip of four Grand Prix before finishing the season at Valencia. Still so much to shake out. My name's Toby Moody. Thank you for listening. Goodbye for now. Speak to you all very soon. The Athletic.